Mr. Stryker, I know nothing about flying, but there's one thing I do know. You're the only one on this plane who can possibly fly it. You're the only chance we've got. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to a special edition of Hollywood Unscripted. I'm your host, Scott Talal of the Malibu Film Society. Today we are celebrating the 40th anniversary of one of the funniest movies of all time, Airplane. Joining us to talk about it, one of the producers, directors, and writers, David Zucker, and one of the stars, Robert Hayes. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. I want to talk first about how all of this came together, David, because you and your brother and Jim, and Jim Abraham, yes. who grew up nearby in Shorewood, Wisconsin. Right. I guess. We were all from, yeah, it was a suburb north of Milwaukee. So the three of you had met, you had started an improv group called the Kentucky Fried Theater. Well, we, we started the show in Madison on the campus of the University of Wisconsin, where we all graduated. And then we moved the show out to L.A. and set up on a little theater on P. Boulevard. So we were acting on stage in Kentucky Fried Theater. I mean, we ran a show called My Nose, and that was because we had no publicity budget. And our weekly listing in the LA Times calendar section read, My Nose runs continuously. Hopefully we got funnier after that, but we also didn't want to be acting on stage in a small theater when we were 50. And so we started writing a movie. And the first movie idea we had, which was in 1975, was Airplane. And so we spent a year writing the script and and couldn't get financing for it. It was then that John Landis came to see the show because I had seen him on The Tonight Show and he had just done a low-budget movie called Schlock and we just wanted to know how'd he go about doing a movie. And we actually met with him. This is before we started writing Airplane and he said, well, first you need a script. And we said, well, we know about that, but what does one look like? So he gave us a copy of American Werewolf in London and we used that as a template and we went ahead and wrote Airplane. Anyways, like I said, it didn't sell. So he came back to see the show and said, why don't you do a movie of your show? And that's how Kentucky Fried Movie came about. And it was a good thing because we had never been on a movie set before and we saw how it was done. We kind of learned from John Landis and then we were ready to direct because it turned out we had to direct Airplane. And so we went back, rewrote Airplane for a year and then took it around to studios, turned down everywhere. But then Michael Eisner at Paramount happened to read it and said to Jeff Katzenberg, who was then his first lieutenant, have these guys in my office Monday morning. And there we were. We were at Paramount. The story goes that you were videotaping the overnight broadcast looking for things to parody. Right. In our show, we would do uh, video segments, which were actually shown on a television monitor. This is before anything. Cell phones, YouTube, anything. The only place you could get alternative comedy was a small theater, like Kentucky Fried Theater. And so we would leave the videotape recorder on all night trying to get commercials to spoof. One morning, we cleared off the machine, and there was this movie, and we got more interested in the movie than the commercials. And the movie was called Zero Hour, which was a 1957 black and white potboiler starring Dana Andrews, Linda Darnell, and Sterling Hayden. And it was exactly the plot to Airplane. So a guy with PTSD boards a plane and has to fly it down because the food poisoning. Yeah, they were even down to the fish. Anybody who ate fish, <laughs> yeah. we weren't very original. Yeah. <laughs> even Johnny? Well, that was our invention, actually having a flamboyant air controller named Johnny. That actor was Stephen Stucker, who was in our live show in Kentucky Fried Theater. 
But you took oh, yeah. what was a very straightforward, yes. melodramatic B-movie. Right. Which was a huge advantage because we didn't know at the time about plot, character, and structure. So we actually cast actors like Robert and Julie, and they had character arcs. And it had a three-act structure, which we had no idea about. We proved that in our next <laughs> movie, came, Top after, Secret. After dailies, yeah. one day they came in to Julie and to me, and they came rushing up, all three of them, and they said, this is actually a love story. And how far were you into filming? Oh, I don't know. That we were two weeks in or yeah. something. I don't know, but we both looked at each other and looked at them and said, yeah. <laughs> we came to learn, as years went on, how important that is, even in the craziest, zaniest movie. And I've done the craziest, zaniest movies, but if they didn't have a character with an arc and a three-act structure and mm -hmm. a good plot, it didn't work at the end. Now, one of my favorite facts of all of this, how much did you pay for the rights to Zero Hour? We found out that it was actually owned by Paramount, but Universal had bought all the Paramount pre-48 film library. And so we bought an option, I think for $10,000. If we bought the rights, it would cost 30000 or 35000 Yeah. Because we thought, we are copying this so exactly, we better buy the rights. And it was a good thing that we did. And this is a movie that went on to gross $160 million. People ask, did you make money? You know, how much did you make? I said, you know, the movie was such a surprise hit and made so much money in such a small period of time that the studio couldn't hide it fast enough. Yeah. And so yeah. we did see profit. In fact, we sent out a, a very poor taste announcement <laughs> to everyone in Hollywood, agents, managers, actors, every, everybody saying, Zucker, Zucker, pleased to announce the receipt of the first $2 million in profit participation from the movie Airplane. <laughs> and so, yeah. I mean, your whole production budget was three, four million dollars? 3.2 and, and I think we did it in seven weeks. Mm -hmm. Could have done it in six if Bob had known his lines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, you do it first time actors. It's, yeah. yeah. A seven week shoot and in seven days you recouped. I think it recouped the first weekend. Yeah. 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 The, oh, uh, I think the, maybe the first night. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> it, it, it broke the records of every theater it was playing in across the country. The jokes are kind of classic because they're not topical. I mean, very few are topical. When Bob says it's an entirely different kind of flying altogether, and then they both say it's an entirely different yeah. kind of flying, yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. funny 40 years ago, yeah. and it's funny today. Yeah. Doctor, I've checked everyone. Mr. Stryker's the only one. What flying experience have you had? Oh, I flew single-engine fighters in the Air Force, but this plane has four engines. It's an entirely different kind of flying, altogether. It's, it's an, an entirely, entirely different, different kind of flying. Kind of flying. So, there Michael was. Eisner helps you get the green light. He has to be given credit. Most people complain about, you know, the horrible suits, the studio executives, the whatever they call them. But we were really blessed to have landed at Paramount, of all studios. And other studios liked us, but they read the script and they said, what the hell is this? You know, they passed. But Eisner, despite everything, kept saying yes. Mm -hmm. And it was an all-star team of executives, which consisted of Eisner, Jeff Katzenberg, Frank Mancuso, Barry Diller, Don Steele. All of these people ended up heading their own studios. And they were all great. They helped us creatively. We were scared to death that it was the Big Bad Studio going to take our wonderful movie because they wanted us to rewrite the script. But the changes that Katzenberg requested were all legitimate and actually helped the movie, yeah. You know, we yeah. went back and forth with Paramount for a month and a half or two months about would we get a green light? Would we be able to cast it the way we wanted it? Would we be able to use our script? Would we be able to direct it? And then one day, 
Jerry and I got a call. We happened to be painting his apartment. And I was in the back bedroom, paint rolling on a ladder full of paint. And we were both on the phone at the same time. And I think it was Katzenberg saying, you got the green light, you're directing it, and we're going to get Howard Koch on it, and we're going. And this was the hugest moment. Jerry hung up the phone and he ran into the bedroom expecting me to be jumping up and down and embracing him, but I was up on the ladder with my back to him just paint rolling the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> got him. And I got him. And he just cracked up. But that was the moment. Before that moment, we were not directing it. We didn't have a green light. We couldn't cast it because once you're directing it, we can cast it the way we wanted to. So you find yourself on the set right. working alongside your brother Jerry and you're working alongside Jim Abraham. What is that like? Well, you mean I working think, yeah, with I uh, think it's, you know, it's very simple. It doesn't matter on, if there's one person the it makes or it kind two of, people uh, or three people not really all given the directions. Have, uh, the actors you know, may have been confused, but I think it worked out. What was the question? <laughs> it was like, it's three bodies with one head, these guys. They think so much alike. And there were times when I would ask something and one of them would start the sentence, the other one would say the middle and the other one would finish it. They got along so well, they knew what they wanted and it was all the same. It was absolutely wonderful for me. David and Jim would look at the monitor. Jerry was out by the camera, you know, with a traditional spot for the director and then he would yell action and cut. And then they would talk about it and they would come and they'd tell us. Part of it was because of the DGA ruling, right? right? The DGA was very strict. They opposed us every step of the way when we were trying to get a triple director's credit. But uh, we were all of one mind. Most of the work of a director is done prior to being on the set. It's in the script, sets, casting, wardrobe, everything, all those other decisions, a million decisions you have to make. And then once you get on the set, get a scene on its feet, it's problem solving. Like, if it doesn't work, what do you do? And then you kind of go through a checklist. You know, maybe there are too many speeches or maybe the speeches are too long. So you start eliminating lines because there's a certain rhythm to it. Having grown up in the business together since 1971, we were all of one mind and we had to try to convince the Directors Guild, which was all about the Frank Capra mantra, one man, one film. They couldn't get it through their heads that three guys could direct a movie. And our executive producer and mentor, Howard Koch, knew everybody in Hollywood and, of course, on the DGA board and kept advocating for us, saying, what does it matter whether it's one guy or 17 guys? You know, what matters is how the picture came out. But we went through several appearances before the board, which were kind of these kangaroo courts. And they kept saying, no, finally, Jerry went down to L.A. City Hall and had his name legally changed, true story, to Abraham's initial N, Zucker's. <laughs> and that's how the Directors Guild spat out a card from their computer saying, Abraham's N, Zucker is the director of... <laughs> when they found out, they were furious. And so they hastily convened another kangaroo session where it was suddenly discovered that we were a bona fide team and they had to cave in. I mean, you guys are first timers at all of this. Where do you get whether you call it chutzpah, cojones, balls, whatever, to take on the Directors Guild of America. It wasn't any more than taking on Hollywood, taking on a new city, <laughs> taking on Paramount. When we left Milwaukee, we were too naive to realize how impossible it was. And we thought we were great, and it was a combination of 
being ambitious and naive that we had no doubt in our mind. I mean, people would ask us, well, what was your plan B if you didn't make it? And we would stare back blankly and we said, well, we don't have a plan B. (laughs) We're going to make it. I mean, we knew we were funnier than anyone else. Mm -hmm. I mean, just, it sounds terrible, but that's that's youth. That's youth, youthful exuberance and just blind faith in what we were doing. I mean, Mm -hmm. it turned out to be right. Of course, we were brilliant, but... uh, (laughs) (laughs) And humble. Yeah, and humble, yeah. (laughs) Believe me, there were many experiences after that where we were humbled. When you find yourself on the set on that very first morning, is there, well, now what do we do? Not on the set the very first morning. We were very determined. We had a plan. We had a script. We had the actors. And we just went about our business. There was very little ad-libbing on the set, but there was a lot of problem That was the tightest script I think anyone had ever seen. I understand the jive scene was ad-libbed. They had worked it out between themselves. Yeah, it wasn't ad lib on the set. It was, we wrote the concept (laughs) of these dudes speaking this unintelligible dialogue. She, mofo, she, mofo. All we knew was she, mofo. Believe me, that's all we knew. You know, three white Jewish guys from Milwaukee had no idea. And so these guys came on, Norm Gibbs and Al White, and they auditioned. But before they auditioned, they met in the waiting room outside, and they combined and they rehearsed this stuff. I think after they looked it up, they Al even said, looked it up. Al, Al told he, me that he found a book, he researched a dictionary it. of black jive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then they looked up the words. And it all works. I don't think we thought that we were going over any boundaries or anything, and any of this stuff. I mean, I remember Leslie Nielsen, after the movie came out, he said that Bob Stack had come up to him and they were discussing some of the sketches in the movie. And one thing they agreed on that they said, uh, the shit hitting the fan, that's never going to work. That'll never (laughs) ever work. But, you know, they were such troopers, they were willing to follow us anywhere and do whatever we said. And Bob Stack, rather than taking a percentage, took all his money up front. I mean, he was wonderful on the set. And He was your first choice, right? He was our first choice. The only person we thought we couldn't do the movie without... But at the premiere, and the first time he saw it, he was overheard saying to his wife, never in my entire life have I been so wrong about anything. (laughs) He he was surprised. And he was the one, there was just no second choice. Right. Talk to us about the ones that got away, some of the people that you had also considered. Stack was our first choice. And uh, we auditioned plenty of strikers. I don't think anybody famous... David Leveran. That's right. Barry Manilow. He wasn't that famous there. Well, Manilow did not come into audition, but he was suggested, mm. and we got worried. <laughs> and, and, and also, Chevy Chase was suggested, Bill Murray. You know, I think the studio wanted to go with the conventional wisdom, because yeah. this was Columbus time. You know, I'm sure there's land out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, they, but I they heard also Bruce Jenner. Bruce Jenner came in three times. Somebody was in his corner at the time and kept sending him back in. Sigourney Weaver. Weaver. Sigourney Weaver. Sigourney Weaver came in to read very nice, but what I remember about her, she was dressed completely as a 1940s era stewardess with the hair, complete (laughs) costume. And she was very nice, but, you know, very politely said she didn't want to say some of the lines, like sit on your face and wriggle. And so we said, thank you. Why would you not say that? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. You're meeting these people who are either Hollywood legends or sons of Hollywood legends. And Jack Webb came in to read for the doctor, but he, he just came in to meet. Yeah. And we really wanted him because it was Jack Webb. Yeah. And, but he declined. Harriet Nelson came in to read for the, the, jive, lady. the jive Lady. 
and she declined because she thought it was a little rough. They all regretted it. She told, I met her later, and yeah. she said, oh, I'm so sorry, yeah, I didn't I, do it. Yeah. I was just nervous about the language. Peter Graves, when he read it, reportedly he threw the script in the trash, saying this is the worst <laughs> piece of garbage I've so, ever read. So how did that turn around? What happens is, in that case, and Bob can probably corroborate this, when actors read a script, they first read only their part. Is that generally true? I think it... Yeah. Yeah, they read their do, own yeah. part. So... I'm sure Peter read all his parts, and on the first read, he appeared to be playing a pedophile. And so he didn't want to do that, of course, because he thought it would ruin his career. But Howard Koch, again, this godsend that we were given, Howard Koch, who knew everybody and had credibility where we didn't, he called Peter and said, Peter, just come in and meet the boys, as we were known. So we did, and we had a very nice meeting. And I think he, and his daughters also. Yeah, his daughter said, and his wife and loved his the script. They you got should it. look at it you again. Should, you should do this. Look yeah. at it again. So. And then I think we appeared to be just guys from Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah. And so we weren't... Like you know, old chaps. We weren't drug-crazed hippies, you know, so... Right. Yeah. And I think we convinced him that... And he said, what the hell, I'll do it. Yeah. Now, Bob, I mean, for you and all of the actors, there had to have been a sense that this is going to be a risk. Well, I read it on a plane. I read, <laughs> I read it going back to Minneapolis, St. Paul, for an ABC event. I was going back there with Donna Pesca. We were doing Angie at the time. And Howard Cosell and a bunch of other ABC people. I read it. The stewardess came up, and she said, I couldn't help but notice you seem to be enjoying this. And I, I said, yeah, I'm going to go meet next week. It's a film, and would you like to read it? So I gave it to her to read afterwards, and she fell apart laughing. But there was something on every single page that made me laugh, that made me make a sound. I mean, I just didn't smile at it. I laughed. Something out loud, a sound came out. I didn't see a risk, and I was just hoping I'd get it. It was my first film. I was hoping I could say something filthy and dirty and rotten. I mean, <laughs> yeah, actors I just want to do that. Yeah. Well, it was, it was actually PG. It was rated PG <laughs> yes. because before Spielberg invented PG-13. Which it Because he got been. for some right. movie he did, yeah, Raiders or something, he got the PG-13. But it was either PG or it went right to an R. So despite all the stuff that today would have gotten us an R, we were able to get a PG. Yeah. From the time I went in and I met with him, my agent had a new agent that had just come in to work in his office, Beth Voicu, and she'd worked with Howard. And they'd been all over the country, apparently, looking for Ted and looking for Elaine and not finding anybody that they really wanted, I guess. And she called and said, Howard, I got your Ted. And he said, well, bring him over. So she brought me over there and we met and we all got along and then I read and they liked it. And then I got to do the screen test with Julie, which was great. It was great for me. I guess it was great for both of us because it, you know, showed the chemistry. The chemistry was there from day one. And they said they liked the spit take because it was that one in the hospital with a spit right. take. And then we went to see the show, Angie. <laughs> yes. They came over to the set of Angie, and we were rehearsing, and I think, screen blocking, getting ready to shoot maybe even that night. So we had to get quiet because they were working out front. And so we went back behind the psych in the back and between the walls, only about three feet or so. And so Jerry and David and Jim and me, and they said, okay, you're the one. And that's when I found out. And so the four of us were kind of jumping up and down like, yeah, isn't that great? That's great. And then they walked outside. That's when Jim said, you know, maybe we should watch this thing. And he told me later, and they all went back and watched it and went, oh, God, yeah, what that, have we done? It's the only time we were truly nervous. And we thought, <laughs> yeah. oh, this could totally tank. Yeah. 
<laughs> but that's a totally different it's a totally, style yeah, of acting. All together. Everything. It's, it's a, a totally, totally different, different style of acting. acting. So that was the jumping up and down part for me. It was that right there. From the moment we got on the set, it was just like so great. You couldn't wait to get up and go to work every day. It was fun. And the first time you get a reaction is from when the actors do the brief rehearsal before the DP lights the set. And our first reaction is from the crew. And they laughed at every joke. It every, was great. Just yeah. about every single scene that yeah. we did, they would laugh. So, I mean, you had read the script on the airplane mm-hmm. before taking the role, and you were laughing at that. How do you maintain a straight face, especially since you're the straight guy in the movie? I started in theater, and you have to. So you kind of develop a thing inside. However, Bob's problem in keeping a straight face was not how funny the lines were in the script, but was Leslie Nielsen. Well, Leslie, that's when he started becoming known for this thing where he carried a little machine, we call it, but it's just a little bellows kind of a thing that a doctor friend of his made or a dentist or something. And he'd lick the fleshy part of his thumb and then he'd squeeze it, had a hole in one end, and it made a sound. I could try to recreate the sound, if you like. I think people know that. It's like a whoopee cushion. Right. So in the scene with me, when he says, Mr. Stryker, I said, both pilots. And he said, Mr. Stryker, can you land this plane? Uh, You know, I flew single-engine fighters in the war, but this has two engines. It's a different kind of flying all together, and they do the all-together line. I think that was the first scene that it was, surely can't be serious. I am serious. Don't call me Shirley. That whole scene, there was a close-up on me. A two-shot of Leslie and Lorna and a single on me. And my whole single, Mr. Stryker, can you you land this plane? (laughs) And I had to keep a straight face during that. That was the roughest thing. Right. Yeah. The stewardess said both pilots. Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Especially when you were writing, did you feel there were things that were going over the line too far? For an instant, the rudest lines in the movie were written by Jim. And what happened, we would sit around in a room, and Jerry and I would, of course, be throwing out lines and Jim, but Jim would type everything on the other side of the table. So he would type it, and then Jerry and I would read it. Mm -hmm. And so, for the first time, we read and sit on your face and wriggle. And that's something that Jim threw in. And we (laughs) laughed hilariously, thinking that's very funny, Jim, but we're never going to use it. And then, of course, we said, why not? That's how stuff like that. Yeah. Jim would put that in just to screw with Jerry and me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would imagine the toughest scene to shoot had to have been the disco. Uh, we had two guys as choreographers, Lester Wilson and Joe Mahoney. Lester was the guy who had been the choreographer with Danny Terrio on Saturday Night Fever. Oh, yeah. mm. and, but he's the guy that they said gave the real flavor and style to Travolta's, Travolta's stuff. Yeah. And so he was in there, and then Joe was kind of a staff choreographer at Disney, I think, and kind of on the staff and all their Disney musicals. And so we rehearsed for two weeks, and um, and we got the dance down, and then we got on the set, and when we got ready to shoot, and this was during the time it was overlapping with Angie. And so the time that we had, I would be rehearsing the series, rehearsing Angie. Uh, we'd get there at 9 in the morning and start rehearsing, and then we'd break for lunch. And I'd literally run across to the door and someone would throw me like football, you know, wide receiver, you going out catching a Ziploc baggie with a sandwich in it. And I'd catch that, run through the door, get in the car, eat the sandwich to get to the other side of the lot where we were shooting the dance bar scene. Mm. And when we got up there and we're standing like this with our hands to the left, to, to the male, you know, the dancer's left, but the camera was over to the right. And 
I don't know, Jim maybe said, well, wait a minute, we can't do this. Can you dance the other, can do it the other way? And I said, well, this is how I come from the bar, so this is the way we end up. And I said, hold on a second. This was like my one contribution in the film. I said, wait a minute, what about I come up to her? And then we circle each other, and then we wind up in the right position. They said, well, let's see, and then we did it, and it worked. So that, that little move was mine. The other move that was mine was being in the crowd so you could see me when my stunt double was being oh, flipped around right. by Julie. The stunt double <laughs> does a flip and goes into the crowd, and you can plainly see Bob waiting, crouched <laughs> in the thing, ready to come out. The crowd had kind of moved yeah. apart a little bit. Right. And there I am. <laughs> the, the, other, the other big screen gaffe, and it also involved Bob. Bob, you seem to find these things. <laughs> Bob is chasing Julie through the airport hallway, and you can actually see a grip laying cable uh, in, yeah, the, in the yeah. far left frame. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but in those days, you know, we didn't do take two. We had to make the days. And, and, and that was at LAX. And, and also, very possibly, no one noticed it. Yeah. yeah. We, so we just kept yeah. going. Yeah. And, and I was way down the hallway there in LAX, and I was standing waiting because the camera's going to follow me up. And so I'm standing there, and I'm at least 50 feet away, Yeah. maybe 100 feet away. And a guy came up next to me and he's standing next to me looking down at what I'm looking at. He said, what's going on? And I said, <laughs> I think they're making a movie. He said, really? Who's in it? And I said, I don't know, but I think like Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, those guys. <laughs> he said, really? <laughs> and I said, yeah. I said, hurry down there. You might be able to see him. And he took off and he got partway down and he turned around and he looked at me and he got down there and he looked at that. Then he kind of gave me the, yeah, you. He said, yeah, it's not Steve McQueen. No. It's the guy from Angie. What, yes. <laughs> what a, yeah. What, what a letdown. What a letdown. God. And then I saw him standing there watching us film for a while. Mm. It was very funny. But if it looked good and it's what they wanted, bang. Yeah, we moved on. on. It was like two or three takes. Yeah, and yeah. sometimes one take on things, but yeah, that was like, all. Three was and, like and the most. And sometimes we didn't even do coverage, like when Leslie and Peter are facing each other and saying, how soon can we land? I can't tell. You can tell me I'm a doctor. No, no, I mean, I can't, you know. <laughs> so, and it keeps going on. It worked perfectly in that yeah, shot. It worked perfectly in that shot, and we were confident enough that it was going to be funny, and it plays out perfectly with the audience. In a movie that is filmed with so many inspired bits, it starts off right at the top that not only are you doing the red zone and white zone announcements, but you went with the real people who did the red zone yeah, and white zone. Right. Well, we did audition people, and they were all fake or you know trying to act their way into it. And so we finally asked the question, who does the actual announcements? You know, We want those people. And so they found it was a couple, it was actual husband and wife, who sell that recording equipment, the PA announcement stuff, to the airport. So we tracked them down, and they did it. And a lot of the dialogue... Just a little old, yeah, nondescript nice couple. couple. Yeah, and she had a cane. I came in to do my... My, my, Did you know, meet them? It, yeah, they, oh, I watched them. I watched them do that whole thing. And I thought, that's them. They she must was have been stool. old in their 50s, probably. Yeah, they were really old. <laughs> yeah. They were probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah, 49. But yeah, that was fun. Part of the dialogue that they were doing was taken right from Arthur Haley's novel, Airport. You know, really, Vernon, what you want me to do is have an abortion, don't you? You know, that <laughs> stuff's taken right out of that book. Very little of Airplane is original. Another truly inspired decision was to cast Ethel Merman in what became oh, her yeah. final role. That's one of my favorite jokes. I mean, I don't know how we came up with that. He thinks but, he's Ethel Merman. Yeah, he thinks he's Ethel Merman. And, of course, it was actually written that way probably in 1975 in the first draft of the script, way before we ever thought we could actually get Ethel Merman. And, uh, you know, Howard we called Koch. up. Yeah, Howard again helped us. You know, Howard was our rock of credibility. 
And he said, it's going to be okay. These guys are okay. Do the movie. She came and her only demand, it wasn't a demand, but, you know, she wanted to bring her own hairdresser. So that's the hair that she has in the movie. <laughs> Ethel yeah. Merman hair, Ethel which Merman, is great yeah. because it's and Ethel she, Merman Yeah, hair. she was very sweet. And just, it was Ethel Merman. I mean, I still think about it. Gee, she thinks she's Ethel Merman. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> and there's so many other lines. I mean, did you have any idea? I mean, don't call me Shirley. Or we, yeah. Let's not talk about that right now. No, but I mean... That, that's become the iconic line. But, you know, we don't know if the Paramount executives really got that stuff or not, or if they thought that casting comedians would have made it funny. But in our contract, I mean, we kept insisting we have to direct it. And finally, they gave up. And in our contract was, number one, Howard Koch had to be executive producer. And we said, fine. And they also said they could fire us within two weeks. And we said, fine. And the first day's dailies were Leslie saying, I am serious and don't call me Shirley. And it was in a room full of dailies and everybody was nervous, but they all cracked up. It was funny. It was funny then. Funny 40 years later. And Katzenberg called us up, I think, that day and said, don't worry about the contract. You guys are fine. <laughs> I think it was John Davison who was the line producer. Yeah. And I think it was John that told me that they... I guess a lot of times they'll say, well, okay, we've got to go down and watch dailies, and they'd make excuses. Well, I got this meeting with so-and-so, or I got to brush my teeth or something. But they had to run the dailies over and over, sometimes four times for everybody, because they all wanted to get in to see dailies on that. The airplane wow. and yeah. dailies were yeah. crowded. Yeah. yeah. Hi, this is Jenny Curtis, producer of Hollywood Unscripted. We hope this show is igniting your passion as much as it is ours. Please subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. It really does matter as we bring you more inspiring conversations with the filmmakers you admire. Now, back to the show. Is it true that, with the exception of Aeromexico, that not a single carrier worldwide has agreed to show this as in-flight entertainment? That's correct. Nobody, it's never been shown on an airplane. Yeah. I have to take my iPad with the movie and show it to people. I go up and down the aisle. Yeah. Now you've seen it on a plane. Yeah, that's how pathetic yeah. I've become. Yes. Yeah, but then you ask for donations. Footnote. Yeah. yeah. You can. Can you beat that, Hayes? I actually was a stewardess had me help uh, deliver the peanuts. Southwest Airlines used to be so funny, and we were all laughing, and everyone was in good spirits. And she came along with the box. You reach into the box with the plastic bag, I guess. It was and she'd say would you like some peanuts you want some peanuts i i took a few of them said here and i handed them over to the people here and she said why don't you hand them out so i took the bag and i just went down the aisle all through the plane handing peanuts out did you get and, recognized yeah a lot oh, because crazy. this was years ago when it was still <laughs> everybody knew yeah. it then so it was pretty much a plane full of huge grins and laughter as i was coming down giving peanuts when my parents were alive, my dad, you know, when he would be on, a, on an airplane, he would go up to the flight attendant and he said, have you ever seen the movie Airplane? <laughs> and she said, uh, yes, I have. And she said, well, my sons wrote and directed it. And then she would go and introduce him to the pilots and he would tell them all about it. And that, you know, it was very yeah. nice. Very, they were very nice that they, they lived to see all that. I have a friend from high school who flew for Delta for 30 years. And he said that all the pilots, their favorite movie was Airplane. They would always talk about it. And even the air controllers would say to pilots routinely, hey, you're coming a little hot there, Stryker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. True story. Yeah. yeah. I've been invited yeah. up into the cockpits yeah. lots of times. Yeah. And on international flights back when you used to be able to go up. Right. 
in and Kareem cockpit. tells that too. He yeah. Says yeah, he's always invited yeah. up. Yeah, just yeah. harder for him to get in. Oh yeah, yeah. to fit in there. <laughs> yeah. How did you get Kareem? I mean, that's another bit of inspired. Oh, originally, uh, originally, uh, the you know, back in 1975, the part was written for Pete Rose, and it was very short. It was just no, you're Pete Rose. It was nothing. It was a nothing thing. Just a one joke deal. But when it came time to actually cast the movie in '79, Pete Rose was not available because he was doing baseball in the summer, mm-hmm. and we were shooting in the summer. So. Really, our second choice was Kareem. And so for Kareem, we invented, and I'm not sure exactly how it came about, and maybe again because Katzenberg told us you can do more than just this. You know, you should add something to it. And then we added the whole thing about the kid, you know, talking about his dad <laughs> thinks that he's just faking yeah. it and wouldn't run down court and... <laughs> totally changed Kareem's public persona because I think he had gotten a reputation because he's a quiet fellow as being aloof and unfriendly, which he's not. He's very friendly and nice. Very quiet. But he's just quiet. So it totally changed. And he has said since that it completely changed his public persona. Yeah. With Rossi Harris. That that was the the boy. With the kid, yeah. Rossi Harris. I understand that Kareem did such a good job of acting that Roxy was totally freaked out and scared by. Oh, was he? What, <laughs> who, oh, Rossi? Was? Rossi, Rossi. Was. I guess it's I Ross I now. Ross. He's, Sorry, he's probably Ross. 40. He's got to he, be 50. He 50 showed up something. at one of our screenings Q&As, and he was up in the audience. I think he came up on oh. stage and <laughs> took a few <laughs> questions. But I don't remember that he was scared. I remember that, this is what I read decades and decades later, that it wasn't until years later that he realize what Peter Graves was saying to him. <laughs> well, we don't care how we abuse kids, you know, <laughs> threatening them physically like Kareem did. Or We got to get the shot. Pedophilia. We got the shot. We we got the movie made. And you also have the unique distinction. It had to be one of his first roles. You had Jonathan Banks. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Because Gunderson. Uh, we had the same law firm. The guys at the law firm recommended, well, there's this guy, Jonathan Banks. You have a part for him? We said, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and I have not seen him a day since 40 years ago. Really? Yeah. We did a film in Spain together. And that's where we became friends because we didn't work together on the film. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, you know, or, or I don't know if he told me or I told him, yeah, we were, you know, in an airplane together. I don't remember which way it was, but we became good friends on that. Mm-hmm. And that was 36, 37, 38 years ago, something like yeah. that. I love the fact that one of the scenes is filmed here in Malibu at Westward Beach. And you were riffing on the love scene from, from Here to Eternity. Here to Eternity. Mm-hmm. I don't think we had ever seen the movie. And Jim had no idea that we were doing a spoof on a specific movie. And he said that years later. He didn't know, but he just thought it was a funny scene. <laughs> Jerry and I had some radar on it, that two lovers kissing on the beach, because it was, of course, an iconic scene. But I guess the water was pretty cold. It was very cold. Yeah, and Bob can tell you about 10, that. 10,000-gallon oh, yeah. portable tank. Mm. They pumped the water up into it and then just opened the flaps and <laughs> for the water rushing back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. With a catfish next to her. Yeah. And then in those... Freshwater catfish. In in those days, they didn't have tiny cameras. So we had this big Panasonic camera that had to go underneath from Julie's POV. So as Bob is on top, we have set stills of Bob up on this scaffolding to get the camera under it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was only five or six feet. But the camera's down there, and I'm up on that platform... 
as though I'm talking to her this close to me, and the camera's shooting up. One of the bits that happened in the movie, the U-Band coffee joke, you had cast Lee Bryant mm-hmm. without realizing that she had actually been the actress. Yeah, I had no idea. I don't think any of us had any idea that she actually did do one of those commercials. I still don't believe it. <laughs> and you had Howard Jarvis. Yeah, that's right. I, that was, was just. I think that was a Howard thing. Yeah, Gosh. Howard. For those who don't know, outside of California, this is the guy who got the Proposition 13, Proposition 13 pass right. that locked in the rent control. You but wanna, you want to do a cameo at that point in time, and back in 1980, that people recognized him, and that was kind of funny. Yeah. And it also marked the first time where, after the credits were over, we positioned one more joke in the movie, and so that had never been done before. As well as jokes in the credits, I mean, I think every comedy before that, the end comes up, and you're yeah. done. We just thought. There was no time when we'd be done making jokes. Even to the very last second where it says the FBI warning, it goes through this very stern warning, the FBI about... uh, Yeah, whatever that uh, whole warning is at the very end of it. And then we said, so there. (laughs) And the FBI was furious, you know, more pissed off than the director's guild was. Even though probably people paid more attention to that one than to any time they'd ever seen that Then they read it. It Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. In watching it again, one of the things that really struck me was the importance of Elmer Bernstein's score in selling Mm. the whole thing. Well, he had done comedies before. He had done Animal House, Mm -hmm. which was, you know, it was a comedy score. But we wanted him to do a score more like Magnificent Seven or any serious movie that he did. And so we said, Elmer, we chose you because we thought you could do a really good B score. Fortunately, he... (laughs) He didn't take offense at that. But he was so talented and so smart that he got it. He knew. He had to kind of write down to it. And it really sold it. It sold it, yeah. Talk to us about the poster. Where did that come from? The origin of the poster was not due to any of our brilliance, but Paramount, again, recruited a very talented artist. He came up with the twisted plane. It said it all without having to be funny, especially without having to have actors in the poster making silly faces. That's what they always do. And that's the opposite of what you guys were doing with right. the film. Yeah, we, we weren't didn't doing silly. We were show, doing straight. Yeah, funny actors. And this was the whole concept. We had nothing to do with it, but again, we landed at a great studio, which was Paramount, in 1979. This film, seminal in so many ways, it started a whole new type of comedy movie. And certainly it sprung off for you in a lot of ways and helped relaunch Leslie Nielsen's career. Yeah, it was unprecedented that somebody, an actor who had an entire resume for, you know, 30 years in serious B-movies, suddenly became the biggest comedy star on the planet. Especially considering how the casting directors thought of him. Yeah, Leslie was not our first choice. And we went to, I think, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. And I think Charlton Heston was considered and Vincent Price. And And the studio was pushing Dom DeLuise? Not pushing it. They were very nice. But we did get casting suggestions, more specifically Chevy Chase and Bill Murray. Mm -hmm. And we were horrified. And we always went to thinking that the studio was going to force us to do anything. And they really weren't. And we were more frightened than we needed to be. And I think Howard Koch always helped hose us down and said, don't worry, (laughs) I'll call their agents. And he would. He called their agents and said, you know, you're getting the script, but I don't really think it's for your client. It's not really going to be something good for him or something, you know. But he fended off a lot of these suggestions. And who knows if it actually went to Barry Manilow, but that's the rumor. But then 
then what did they say to Leslie when you said you want Leslie? Oh, yeah. So, so then it was about two weeks till photography started. We still didn't have the doctor. And so we came up with this idea. Well, there was this actor who was in the Poseidon Adventure and a million other B parts and serious, hard-hitting TV movies, shows TV and, shows. Yeah. And we found out his name. It was a guy named Leslie Nielsen. And we suggested it to our Paramount casting director. And he exploded. And this is after having... His reputation was on the line for casting a movie comedy. And so far, he's got Robert Stack, Lloyd Bridges, and Peter Graves. And he said, Leslie Nielsen? Leslie Nielsen's the guy you cast the night before. And we were already two weeks away. Surely we could have found somebody better. And we love this guy and we think he can do it. Mm-hmm. So we did. We had him in and, you know, he. they called Leslie's agent and Leslie read the script and we heard later that he told his agent, don't tell these guys, but I would pay them to do this movie. So Leslie He said knew he'd always movie. wanted to do really goofy, funny stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it was the boys that actually, he got up to the door, but the boys pushed him through the door. Right. I won't deceive you, Mr. Stryker. We're running out of time. Surely there must be something you can do. I'm doing everything I can. Now stop calling me Shirley. I mean, the whole idea of casting all these actors against type was is a huge part of what made it work. One of the things we used to do was redub old movies, and we put our voice on some you know serious stuff. And that's what Woody Allen did in a movie called What's Up, Tiger Lily. Mm-hmm. He dubbed an entire old Japanese B movie, and he redubbed it. And so we saw Zero Hour, and we said, well, we could redub this, but why don't we just remake it? and cast it with these kind of actors, and that was the breakthrough. So it kind of seemed very natural to us. Well, it changed the way a lot of these comedies were made. And I think it changed the way people saw movies, in a way, um, because Universal had another airport movie coming out after Airplane. Right around the same time, yeah. Yeah, and they were playing the trailer, and people were laughing. Yeah. And this was a serious movie. I think it was a bridge too far. They couldn't do it anymore. After That's why they were going to sue us for the name. Oh, they were gave us a terrible yeah. time. They yeah. didn't want us to use the name. But they changed the ad campaign for Airport 70, 79, 79 70, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Or Airplane 81 or wherever yeah. it was to see it for the thrills, see it for the laughs. True story, yeah. Wow. So, 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 and that pretty much ended the whole airport, airport franchise. Airport franchise, yeah. Howard said that they were suing, so you can't use the name airplane. It sounds too much like airport, yeah. our incredible franchise of movies. And he said that he went to him and he said, come on, guys, just watch it. He sent a copy over. He said, just watch it and then tell me what you think. So they watched it and they laughed and they said, okay, you can use it here. But in foreign countries, you have to change the name. So yeah. in, in the UK, it was called Flying High. And in France, it was called, Is There, is there a, a Pilot, pilot in the plane. plane? Yeah. And in Germany, it was the crazy flight of the crazy airplane, something mm-hmm. like that. Everywhere in it was called something Mexico, different. Mexico, where is the pilot? Donde está el piloto? In Spain, it's Perite uh, Como Puedes, which is, is there a pilot for this plane? In France, it was Yatilum Pilot en l'avion. Is there a pilot for this plane? Yeah. It's just that everywhere, all the different names. Do you think this movie could be made in today's PC environment? Oh, yeah, sure. Just without the jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's hard to answer. People are so sensitive. So who knows what it's like? The state of movie comedy is horrible right now. There's no good movie comedies. But there's something great on TV. They're called The Impractical Jokers. They're on True TV. And 
They are hysterically funny. And you just did a. I this just went is on no their joke. cruise. You were on a yeah, cruise. Yeah, I was with on a them. cruise with they them. They have such a following now. They have a they huge have cruise, following. Cruises yeah. with but I still all run into fans. people who haven't seen them. I met one of them at a film festival six years ago, and I didn't know who he was, but which all one I, was Q? Oh, Brian yeah. Quinn. So he gave me a DVD of their first season, and I started watching it. And I couldn't get through twenty minutes because I was literally choking, laughing so hard. I wrote them all an email saying I love this thing, and. Then we became friends. They they came out to L.A. and took me out to dinner, but tried to escape and saddle me with a check, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we've been friends ever since. Yeah. I guess you guys get to see each other from time to time at the fan festivals and the reunion of the film. Yeah. We've gone to yeah. a bunch of different festivals. David and I have done it more than we've done it with the whole group. But so most recently, San Francisco. That was yeah. great. That was the first time Julie's ever done it. And yeah. so the three of us did it. And it was great. And the people loved it. 1,400 people. And it was sold. There were people who Packed. they were turning away. And yeah. it's for a 40-year-old movie. It was like, yeah. and they laughed all the way through it. They laughed like it was brand new, like it had just come out. And they even were anticipating jokes and starting to laugh. I mean, it was just, it was great. So what's the funniest and or weirdest thing that's happened at a Q&A? I, I always get asked, what advice would you give to a young actor, director, writer, producer starting off in the business? The first time that was ever asked, I just thought for two seconds, I said, quit now, you'll never make it. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's got a big laugh. And then I thought, oh, what a kind of an asshole thing to say. And so I said, but if you can disregard that advice, you'll be halfway there. And so that was picked up by some magazine. And that's been quoted a lot. I see it in lists of motivational quotes. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah. They do that. As you're wrapping the shoot, what were you thinking? It was sad. It was over because we'd had so much fun, and it was short. It was uh, it was only seven weeks, and that was a feature film. Shoot that in seven weeks is it was very short for a feature. Yeah, it was so intense, and we're working so hard yeah. that I'm sure we thought it was longer. Yeah, but the days go fast. Yeah, you know, the last shot I think was the big plane crashing through the the glass. We were going so fast, but that was pretty much every day. Yeah. Holy shit, I'm making a movie, and I'm having fun. Did you have any sense that it was going to have these kinds of legs? I think if if we had, we'd own the world right now. You can't figure that stuff out. But what what happened was, as we're filming it, I, I was thinking, you know, actually, this might be like a college cult film, you mm -hmm. know, which would be really neat. You have one of those that just is on and on and on in colleges. And then as we were going along and as the dailies were coming in, the more we were getting shot, we started feeling like this might be a little bit more than that. And then we got really quiet and we just want to hex it so we didn't talk about it. And mm -hmm. one guy came in, we were standing, about five of us standing around, you were there, but a guy that was a day player came in, and he walked up and joined the group and said, hey, guys, boy, I hear this is really going to be a hit. <laughs> and we all turned and walked away and it's left like, him yeah, alone. Yeah, I hear you're pitching a no-hitter. <laughs> yes, right. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I yeah. think that since we conceived the idea in 1975, we were so enthusiastic about the idea, and we were so, again, you know, naive, and ambitious and very uh, self-confident about that this would be a hit. And to sell the script to a studio, we kept saying, this is going to be a big hit. And we actually did believe that. So when it actually did become a big hit, truth be told, we were not surprised. We just assumed it would become a hit. What was a surprise and what we couldn't predict was how long it would last. 
and that 40 years later, Bob and I would be at a screening at the Castro Theater, 1,400 people, a sellout crowd. Screaming. And, yeah. Screaming, and the same reaction as it had in 1980. That you can't predict, that how classic all the lines got to be. So what are your favorite bits from the film? You know, I always think of, well, there's this one joke that was funny 40 years ago, and it's funny today, and it'll be funny 40 years from now, and that's when Leslie comes in and finds Lorna Patterson, the stewardess, crying, crying. and crying she says, she... I'm scared, I've never been so scared, and besides, I'm 26 and I'm not married. And that gets a laugh, but then Lee Bryant comes in, and Leslie says, how are you holding up? And she repeats the line, I'm scared, I've never been so scared, but at least I have a husband. <laughs> yes. And then Lorna just... Just, you know, <laughs> falls, falls apart. apart. Yeah. Yeah. And that was another one of those things that was done in one shot. Yeah. Again, it's done without people trying to be funny. We just wanted to use actors. And, you know, the actors were saying hilarious lines, but not trying to put that layer over it of winking and trying to be funny. That's, I think, what kills comedy. And everybody in the movie understood that. I mean, there are so many. I love the scene with Leslie and Peter. How long before we can land? I can't tell you. You can tell me I'm a doctor. That scene gets me every time. I love that scene. And I love the surely can't be serious with Leslie. But I was just thinking about it. It, was, it shocked me, the humor. I mean, it caught me. It was when I turned to camera and say, what a pisser. Because you never break that wall. Mm -hmm. You don't look at the camera. I look at the audience. And I remember in the theater watching that. And it, even though I did it, it kind of jerked me around and that made me laugh. Yeah, and I think the studio always encouraged us to not stop. Like I was saying about the Kareem bit, I think they encouraged us to do more. And the same thing you mentioned, Bob, the Leslie and Peter bit about how soon can we land. Katzenberg also encouraged us, we should keep going, you know, do more with that. So and that's so how the joke got That's lengthened. how it got lengthened yeah. to that. Mm. It was such a great yeah. collaboration. I've never had that since then, yeah. that kind of collaboration between studio executives yeah. and the creative people. I mean, the studio executives were creative. So where are our bloopers and outtakes? There's a few on the... Uh, Don't call me Shirley edition. I wish they'd put out the more DVDs. People love well, those Well, there things. were some other, you know, nothing funny because what people don't realize about outtakes from comedy movies is that if it were funny, it would have been in the movie. <laughs> yeah. So this is like they say, hey, an additional material, you know, of outtake. They're not hilarious. A lot of things that are funny that people like to watch are also the mistakes, outtakes, because you flub the line. I mean, look, it's just my opinion, but I don't think it's funny when actors flub the line. It's like, big deal. We've seen it a million times. Oh, 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 yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. What, what's funny about that? We did that, that? With, uh, with Julie. Mm. Uh, she yeah. flubbed a line. And uh, just someone asked what she like, and I said, this explains what she's like more than anything else I can think of. She flubbed a line, and it was right behind the cockpit. She and I were right, right up in that area. She flubs a line, and they say, cut. And uh, she said, oh, with that little voice, which is her voice. Mm -hmm. She said, I'm sorry. And said, oh, that's okay, Julie, uh, um, to the script supervisor. Have you got the line? Give her the line. Yep, we're all set. She said, I'm sorry. I said, don't worry about it. And so then we went again and said, ready and action. And I flubbed the line. And they said, cut. She said, I'm sorry. I said, no, 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 Julie, it wasn't you, Bob. He flubbed the line. She said, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> just the best to work with. It's yeah. just incredible. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your stewardess speaking. We regret any inconvenience the sudden cabin movement might have caused. This is due to periodic air pockets we encountered. There's no reason to become alarmed, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your flight. By the way, is there anyone on board who knows how to fly a plane? How did your family and friends and colleagues react when they saw you in this? Well, my dad 
uh, was a career Marine. He was a fighter pilot, so he was a pilot. So but, I, and you I, also I, were a you got your your fixed wing right? Yeah. But I uh, asked him what he thought of my flying, and he was like, <laughs> well. But he, I think he was excited to meet Peter Graves, wasn't he? Well, I, I brought my folks to the screening we had at the DGA. My dad was 6'3", my little 5'2 mom. So we're standing there, and my dad's reserved, quiet, colonel, Marine Corps. And so I thought, oh, well, there's Peter Graves. Maybe they'd like to meet Peter. So I said, Peter, here's my mom and dad, John and Abby Hayes, and this is Peter Graves. And Hi, how do you do? And dad wasn't, he wasn't a man of a lot of words. Mm -hmm. And if there was something to say, you'd say it. Otherwise, you'd just, you know, quiet. And so after they'd said hello and how are you, that's fine. And so that was it, pretty much. And I jumped in to fill the void. And I said, so, Peter, how you doing? And he says, uh, how, you, how you feeling? How you been? And he says, oh, fine, fine. Had a strange hankering for little boys lately. <laughs> my dad's dad, jaw dropped. And my mom and I turned quickly and I said, oh, it's in the movie. Wait, wait, you'll see the film. You'll see it. Uh, oh, don't worry about it. Before they <laughs> saw yes. Peter definitely embraced the whole thing. After it's all said and done, how did it change your career? How hmm. did it change your life? I had friends coming up to me saying, hey, I just saw the trailer for your movie. Those are all the jokes, right? And I'd say, no. <laughs> and the word was getting around. And a girl that I was going with, my girlfriend, Terry Becker, she was a recording engineer, music recording engineer. She and I went to see it. And we saw Tom Perry, who was another VP yeah. at Paramount, was one of the guys involved, and his friend. So we went up and sat in the back. And a couple came in. You could tell it was the couple and then the, the sister of one of the two of them. And then the couple's three kids. And so the aunt sat there with the kids and the couple right in front of me. They came in and she turned around and she kind of looked at me and did a little double take and then turned back around. And then when it came up, it said starring Robert Hayes. She whipped around and looked at me again. <laughs> and I looked at her and she turned back around. And then we're watching the film. And as Julie and I were doing the scene in the hallway and when she says, and I remember how I used to sit in your face and wriggle. I remember the guy just stock still. And it was a whole three seconds and he turned to his wife and said did she say what i think she said <laughs> and then we left from that went over to the old world cafe and a friend of mine was an actor who we'd done some movies and things together and he was between films so he was working as a waiter as usual and we're sitting back in the back and we got a little split of champagne that he'd gotten and we toasted and two couples walked in and for some reason this one guy was looking at me and for some reason i kept thinking He's Belgian. I have no idea why I thought that. He's a tall, elegant-looking guy. And a minute later, the woman he was with, they're wheedling their way through, and she's saying, where, where? And he's saying, well, right there. And I was looking at him like, what are you looking at? You know, why are you looking at me? Because I have no idea. And she comes up to me. She says, was that you? And I've had the mistake of thinking that someone knew who I was, but actually it was somebody else. And so uh, she said, was that you? And I said, did you see it? And she said, oh, you were great. You remind me of this and this and my brother's great. And I thought, man, there is something familiar about this woman and I can't think of what it is. And so I said, this is my girlfriend, Terry, and my friend Roger. And she says, hi, I'm Shirley McLean. And I went, of course, that's why she looks familiar. So I had that happen the opening night of the show. And then from then on, it was um, crazy. Then I started getting scripts. And before, you go in and you're reading, and you're one of millions trying to get something. And I'd have stacks of scripts. Nowadays, you'd be having like, uh, here's a script, will you do this for $10 million? It wasn't that way back then. But, right. <laughs> but it was still a big, big deal for me. How about for you, David? One of the biggest things was 
coming from Milwaukee, you know, it's a lot different than coming from L.A. or New York where, you know, there's a lot of celebrities and a, a lot of success, but uh, not so much from Milwaukee. And a week before the movie opened, my parents and Jim's mom rented out the Fox Bay Theater, which is the theater that we used to go to see, you know, Laurel and Hardy and Three Stooges movies as kids. And that the entire 800-seat theater was, you know, they invited every friend, family, you know, teacher, everybody we ever knew. And I remember that was an amazing night. And then we did, of course, a Q&A afterwards, you know, just coming from nowhere and having this huge hit and being on the cover of People magazine. I mean, that never happened again. And you realize that it's, of course, it can't happen again because there's only one coming from nowhere and, and achieving something. But mainly, as I said before, it's amazing how the movie has lasted. And so it's brought joy into my life every day of my life since then. So it's just, I've been incredibly lucky in that way. Robert Hayes, David Zucker, thank you so much for joining us today and celebrating the 40th anniversary of Airplane. Thank, thank you. you. I've really enjoyed talking about myself for, <laughs> for this whole time. <laughs> Hollywood Unscripted is created by Kurt Co Media and presented in cooperation with the Malibu Film Society. This episode has been a special 40th anniversary celebration of Airplane, hosted by Scott Talal, with guests David Zucker and Robert Hayes, produced and edited by Jenny Curtis. Sound engineering by Michael Kennedy. The clips from the movie Airplane featured in this episode were provided courtesy of Paramount Pictures. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast for more conversations with top industry professionals discussing the entertainment you love. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind. Mm-hmm.